Uh, young stroke is one year older than me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good point, but nobody actually clarifies what they mean by that um, in many papers. Uh, I carry around 55 in my head because a lot of papers use that, that age. Uh, 50 is often used by some, 60 by those who are being a bit defensive. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right, there is no specific epidemiological criterion for what constitutes a young stroke. That was Dr. Gavin Young, consultant urologist with a specialist interest in stroke and vascular neurology at the James Cook University Hospital. He was discussing what defines a young stroke, and I think you'll agree there is no more perfect intro. This is Tease Neuro, and I'm Dr. Lee Wibland, consultant urologist also at James Cook. In this episode, we're talking about stroke, evidence for our practice, and what the future holds. It's a real pleasure today to be joined by uh, Dr. Gavin Young, um, who is a neurologist at James Cook Hospital, more importantly tolerated me as a trainee for many years and survived. Um, thank you for joining us, Dr. Young. It's a pleasure. So you're going to talk to us today about some vascular neurology, some stroke, and we've had lots of questions from not only from neurologists this time, but uh, lots of our um, more junior trainees. So we've had some foundation doctor questions um, and also we've had some stroke trainees send some questions in as well so um, plenty of challenges for you. Um, would we just be able to start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into your how you got into neurology how you got into your specialist interests? Okay yeah no that's uh, a vaguely interesting story so neurology first of all uh, had no particular interest in neurology as a student, uh, other than the usual. At Manchester, where I trained, didn't really do much neurology as students. Um, had a house job that involved neurology, three months neurology. So the very first job I did was neurology, which was interesting, and got a bit of a, an interest in it then. I then did a couple of years uh, SHO jobs after the house jobs, and in those days you constructed your own rotations. Um, and basically got a bit fed up with the on-calls and sat down one night with a list of future careers that didn't involve much on-call. I'm sure we've all done that at some stage in our careers and radiology and neurology interestingly came up and I didn't really fancy uh, radiology so neurology got more of an interest at that stage then did a, a six-month attachment in Leeds in neurology and that was really great fun and got to know uh, John Bamford who was uh, and still is a very big name in the stroke research world, a uh, big player in the Oxfordshire Community Stroke Project, which is one of the big epidemiological uh, community-based uh, stroke databases that has driven a lot of research in the UK. And he got me interested in stroke and knew of uh, research projects that were going on for registrars, which took me to Liverpool, where I met up with Peter Humphrey, who... Uh, basically took me under his wing and we did a research project looking at magnetic resonance angiography, its role in crotostenosis, diagnosis and management, comparing it with ultrasound and catherangiography. This was in the days when non-invasive imaging was just coming through as the way to investigate crotid. Still a bit of controversy about that, a lot of people wanting to hang on to catheter angiography despite increasing evidence that it carried some significant risks. So spent some time doing a, a research project there in Liverpool, then went on to be a lecturer, bizarrely, in Liverpool, 
uh, and effectively senior registrar. Uh, and then finally, with some prompting from some of the consultants in Liverpool, started applying for jobs. In those days, the system was that a large cohort of senior registrars would travel around the country having parties, uh, <laughs> thinly disguised as interviews for posts that they were never going to get because there were plenty of applicants for very few posts. And that was known as the Senior Registrar's Travelling Club. So I anticipated a couple of years of heavy partying. And just at that time, GP fund holding came in, technology massively expanded. All the registrars were sucked up into posts. And the very first uh, party that I went to was the Middlesbrough uh, job and uh, got it. That must have been a good party. Surprise. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I had no knowledge of Middlesbrough whatsoever, I'd have to say. And like a lot of my career decisions, it was based more on just chance than any kind of planning. Uh, the Middlesbrough neurologists were very canny. They gave me directions to Middlesbrough involved traveling through the market towns on a sunny day <laughs> and uh, lunch at Stokesley on the Friday, which was, I was told, with a regular team thing. And uh, yeah, the place looked great and went to the interview and got it. So then essentially set up a neurology and uh, TIA service. Uh, up until that point, there really wasn't uh, an acute TIA clinic or service set up in Middlesbrough. So I set up that. Uh, from my research, I had a skill in doing ultrasound. So I set up an ultrasound uh, uh, component to the TIA clinic. And then the rest is history really developed together with elderly care colleagues, uh, the stroke service and the acute stroke service and the TIA service at James Cook. Mm, thank you very much. Um, so it's, I know it's quite variable um, around the country as to how much uh, stroke component uh, is included in training uh, for, for um, neurology trainees. Um, so some uh, neurology specialist trainees might have more or less experience of, of the TIA clinic. Um, from my time with you, um, I found that your TIA clinics tended to have, and I don't know if this was just chance or by design, but your clinics tended to have maybe more of a sort of complex neurological bent maybe compared to some of the other TIA clinics I went to. And I know that um, quite a lot of the questions we've had are aimed at maybe the sort of the, the zebras in the TIA clinic rather than the, rather than the horses. Um, but one of our opening questions is about TIA clinic. Um, and that asks for somebody who is maybe younger, and maybe I'll let you define what, what's young in stroke. What sort of factors do you think about for somebody who's had a, a young stroke? What tests do you do and what do you think about? Okay, so there used to be a big dichotomy, largely I think because neurologists tended to cherry pick uh, stroke and TIA cases. Certainly many years ago, uh, elderly care physicians tended to manage the stroke patients and the neurologists tended to come along and, and show interest in the interesting cases and the young stroke cases. So for a long time, young stroke was kind of a separate entity and the, the word differential diagnoses and lists that people used to carry around in their heads of how to, to work them up differently. Um, that's changed a little bit now. Most stroke physicians are highly competent folk now and have a good knowledge of, of rare stroke and unusual strokes, chameleons and stroke mimics. So it, it's a bit less than it used to be, I think. I don't get asked quite so frequently about uh, young stroke and, and I don't think neurology has the reputation of being a kind of young stroke only uh, specialty, at least not locally, it may be in, still in some other units. 
But nonetheless, it's still worth having a little bit of a kind of knowledge about the different presentations. Essentially, the, the, the question was around what investigations and risk factors would you, would you think about in younger stroke patients? And that really boils down to the differential diagnosis. So what different conditions are you looking for in younger stroke or TIA patients? And essentially, the, the kind of breakdown of the differential diagnosis and the causes of uh, stroke in younger folk if you look at that, the, the biggest group is actually cryptogenic, which means we never find the cause. So once you get past that point, the next in, in line is early atherosclerosis. So actually, even though young folk, you look for all the rare stuff, it's still actually atherosclerosis, given its large and high frequency you know, distribution amongst the population, it's still atherosclerosis that drives things. But then you get on to the more unusual things, things which may still be uh, evident in older patients, but actually uh, you don't think about them so much in that age group, and I'm sure a lot of these pathologies get missed in the elderly, but it's things like arterial dissection, uh, the extracranial and intracranial, although we tend to concentrate much more on the extracranial dissections, uh, cardiac embolism, particularly structural cardiac abnormalities, atrial fibrillation to a degree, although again that's much more of a kind of elderly person's disease. Um, PFO is the structural cardiac disorder that gets most of the publicity but there are other ones too um, and in terms of investigation that drives you towards imaging of the heart which would be obviously echocardiography uh, transthoracic or transesophageal usually there's a there's kind of sequence to these events transthoracic first transesophageal next um, we tend not to do a great deal of echocardiography locally its yield is really quite low if you look at studies they'll suggest massive uh, proportions of positive feedback from uh, echo in any stroke patient population but in fact if you look at the proportion of uh, diagnoses where the management is is altered by the information on the echocardiogram or at least altered with evidence-based medicine to back it up um, there isn't much that echocardiography provides, but certainly in the younger stroke patients, we would, we would think about doing it, particularly if there was any clinical clue to a cardiac problem. Um, you also have to think about what kind of stroke you're dealing with. If you're dealing with ischemic stroke, which is what most, most people assume we're, we're talking about with these sorts of questions, then there is a different list of possibilities to primary hemorrhage. Of course, primary hemorrhage in the young, you start thinking about vascular anomalies, so ABMs, cabinomas, um, vasculitis even, uh, in younger age groups often will present with hemorrhage, tumours, hemorrhagic tumours, moya um, moya disease, which can present with both ischemic and hemorrhagic. So I'm not concentrate too much on hemorrhage, but there is obviously if your stroke is a, is a primary intracerebral hemorrhage, then you have a completely different set of uh, investigations and things to think about. Um, once you've got past dissection and cardiac, uh, drug misuse and prescribed drugs are probably the next big group. And drug misuse probably under-diagnosed or under-considered. Uh, we don't all ask about cocaine and amphetamine and uh, injectable drug use uh, with our patients, and perhaps we should. Um, and then after that, getting into rare stuff then probably the infections are the ones to be thinking about as well HIV particularly uh, but also uh, syphilis um, shouldn't forget about that it's obviously treatable so very important not to miss those disorders um, and then probably what's in everybody's list but again doesn't contribute a huge amount in my practice would be prothrombotic disorders so these are deficiencies of protein C protein S antithrombin 3 
um, various mutations, factor V, Leiden mutation, prothrombin gene mutation. These are standard tests that people fire off um, in any young stroke. The difficulty here is quite a significant proportion of the general population will have clotting abnormalities and the relevance to arterial stroke isn't always clear. Certainly strong links with venous thrombotic events, but some uncertainty, I'd have to say, with arterial. So I'm less of an enthusiast um, about clotting and prothrombotic tests, but I will include them. Uh, and then, of course, you've got genetic disorders, probably the ones that most people are aware of, Calicil, Fabry's, uh, mitochondrial disorders, obviously if you're from Newcastle. You're from Newcastle. Mitochondrial Newcastle. disorders and everybody. Um, and then you're into very small print stuff and... I'd probably run out of things off the top of my head that I would go through there. But the, the way to structure your workup is really to think of the, to have some knowledge of the, the epidemiology and the breakdown of stroke causes and then structure investigations around that, paying particular care to the ones where the treatment implications are different, but also sometimes the ones where uh, there is a, an important ramification from the diagnosis, even if there isn't a treatment like a genetic mm. disorder. And uh, <laughs> how, what would you define as a young stroke and has that changed throughout your career? A <laughs> uh, young stroke is one year older than me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good point that nobody actually clarifies what they mean by that um, in many papers. Uh, I carry around 55 in my head because a lot of papers use that, that age. Uh, 50 is often used by some, 60 by those who are being a bit defensive. Um, but uh, yeah, you're right. There is no specific epidemiological criterion mm. for what constitutes a young stroke. And you might say actually childhood stroke, which is a hugely different subject and completely different differential, which I wouldn't go into at all. Um, so yeah, the definition of young stroke is interesting, but 50 to 55 is the kind of threshold that most people would use. Yeah. And this, uh, obviously, there the seems to be a big split in stroke between sort of young and sort of normal or older stroke. Um, I remember doing TIA clinics, uh, not with you, and a big deal was made out of somebody's ethnic background in terms of stroke. Is that something that you... Yeah, I mean, it's a factor. It's a factor because of a few different things. Firstly, the kind of strokes that people have will vary according to ethnic background. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in the Asian populations and the Eastern populations, you tend to get more intracranial uh, disease, uh, slightly increased risk of hemorrhages. Um, some of the treatments vary according to ethnic background, so there is a difference in how people of Afro-Caribbean origin uh, respond to ACE inhibitors, which drives some of the blood pressure prescribing. Um, some of the rarities like Moya Moya, obviously there are um, tachyacids, arteritis, mm -hmm. and these sorts of things obviously have uh, ethnic differences. So there is some legitimate um, uh, reason for going into ethnic background for, for stroke epidemiology and differential diagnosis. And as we know from COVID, obviously the risk factors seem to be more prevalent of diabetes and blood pressure and cardiac disease seems to be more common in some of the uh, ethnic groups than in the white Caucasian population. Um, so I guess these things are relevant. It's not something that is, is hugely important, I think, for the majority of strokes, but it's something to be aware of. Yeah, I think I think the ones that I always took away, you know, irrespective of socioeconomic risk factors and things, were Afro-Caribbean uh, people generally do better on a calcium channel blocker, don't they, even at a young age? And yeah, I think people know this from the, the, the guidelines. Mention this, yeah. so if you read the guidelines, you'll think, well, that's 
that's what they're talking about is that and then if you're interested you'll follow it up so so that is something that people are aware of obviously things like sickle cell disease and some of the other um, genetic disorders are, are, are much more prevalent in certain populations um, but as i say it, it tends in day-to-day -day practice to be a fairly small market and sort of sticking with the tia clinic uh, we we had a question from um from quite a junior listener um and he did mention mimics and chameleons so the sort of uh, and having done the tia clinic with your with with yourself has seen some really good <laughs> mimics and chameleons but um to inform listeners particularly those who may not have been able to attend many tia clinics themselves what are the what are the common referrals that you get to tia clinic that that are not TIAs, and what do you need to be aware of when you see patients? Depends a little bit on how you define what is a TIA. Most studies that have tried to do this have used the stroke neurologist as the gold standard, which is somewhat debatable. Uh, of course, there is no gold standard for TIA. It's a, it's a diagnosis that's based purely on the symptoms and the history. Um, so that's one of the problems. If, if, it's, if a TIA is what I say it is, then obviously I'm, I'm going to come out looking pretty good at how I diagnose them. Um, that aside, there are criteria that most of us are taught on which to base a diagnosis of TIA, and they're not based on anything greatly scientific. I think they largely relate to a get-together of interested stroke physicians in the 70s who, who sat down as a committee and defined what they thought the various different criteria and features of TIA should be. Is a collective of stroke neurologists a clot? Uh, yeah, probably um, <laughs> something similar. Um, so in terms of the, the common mix, the, the things that we find in the refer to the clinic, um, which turn out not to be TIAs, there is a, a large group of folk where we really don't have the faintest idea what's wrong. We just know it's not a TIA. And even that, you could say, well, how do you know? But, um, so that's quite a big group of just, you know, I have no idea. And I certainly encourage people to use that and grab onto that uh, diagnostic category. It's a very useful one to have. Uh, the other groups are what you might think, really. It's um, classical migraine with neurological symptoms, focal epilepsies, um, functional patients with uh, particularly functional sensory symptoms. And then you're into other organic brain diseases that sometimes mimic stroke, and that might be peripheral nerve palsies. It might be structural brain disease like MS, um, degenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease. Even we've had patients with Parkinson's referred up to the clinic with unilateral hemiparesis uh, and in inverted commas. Um, but it's predominantly epilepsy, migraine, and functional would probably be the, the, the big three. And the, the proportion of mimics, or at least non-TIA, non-vascular uh, cases in the TIA clinics, has been fairly consistent over the years. In my clinics, we've kept an eye on this, and it, it's tended to run about 40 to 50% vascular diagnosis. In the last two or three years, it's, it's dropped down to about 20%. And I think the TIA clinics, certainly the way that we construct them locally, are so accessible and provide such a fast opinion, often with a neurologist uh, as well as a very experienced elderly care physician that I think a lot of people see it as a fast track neurology clinic as An well emergency, as a TI clinic. clinic yeah. So I think that, that's the reason why the, the proportion of TIA patients has, has diminished. Plus I think there's a little bit of de-skilling 
in the non-specialist world as stroke physicians and uh, stroke doctors take over uh, TIN stroke and, and general physicians tend to see less of it, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, in terms of the, the, the question that was asked, I think it was also, as well as what, what are the mimics, it was how can you tell the difference? And that's not as easy as it sounds. Um, what I'm going to say now should be taken with a big pinch of salt because none of these things are absolutely foolproof. But the way that I usually talk about this to students is to look at the various features that might go to, to make a diagnosis. So the first one would be the, any triggering factors. Provoked attacks tend not to be TIAs. Uh, they're usually random, spontaneous events. So anything that is provoked consistently um, tends not to be a TIA. The catch to that would be hemodynamic TIAs. Most TIAs we think are embolic, but a small proportion are hemodynamic related to reduced perfusion and they can be triggered. But, but in general, um, if something is consistently triggered, it's probably not a TIA. If the patient gets a significant warning before the event, um, then again, that tends not to be a TIA. Uh, we're looking for focal symptoms. It's very important. So you should not be experiencing global symptoms, confusion, um, disorientation, dizziness, whatever that means. Um, a lot of store is put on the type of symptom. We talk about positive versus negative symptoms. By positive, we mean things like uh, extra movements, jerking, twitching, uh, thrashing about and flailing, which tend not to be TIA. Uh, and what we're looking for is kind of negative loss of power, loss of strength. Likewise, in sensory, when patients describe it, they usually describe loss of feeling, um, tingling, pins and needles, a little bit less likely, but again, that's uh, sensory symptoms per se are always a bit more tricky in the TIA clinic. How the symptom comes on, what you really want in a vascular event is a very abrupt, almost instantaneous onset. Uh, if there's a strong hint of evolution of symptoms, spreading symptoms, evolving symptoms, then that again puts you off. TIA makes you think a little bit more of migraine aura uh, or of spreading sensory seizures, etc. Uh, how long does it go on for? Uh, TIA is typically minutes. Uh, anything that's just a split second or two or three seconds, no, nobody's really defined the lower threshold for what can be a TIA, but you know, anything that's just a split second, we would usually say is not a TIA. Hours on end, particularly if it's not associated with any kind of MR appearance, and I'll come on to MR in a bit more detail in a second, is very unlikely to be uh, vascular or TIA. Um, and then kind of associated symptoms, constitutional upset if people are terribly ill or terribly poorly or feel anxious or um, you know, sickly, nausea, vomiting. Big constitutional upset is not typical of TIA. Most TIAs occur in people who are well. It's one of the problems of TIA. A lot of people dismiss the symptoms and ignore them because they feel well in themselves and uh, you know, in the past would, would not present after the TIA and we'd only find out about it after the stroke. So a big constitutional upset again wouldn't, wouldn't uh, make me be thinking of TIA. So the, the clinical features can be very important and that's what drives most of the thought processes in the clinic. These days we resort a bit more to tests than we used to. There used to be a lot of pride in not requesting brain scans, uh, largely because we couldn't, um, or the radiologists wouldn't let us. Uh, nowadays, there is a bit more of a push towards doing imaging and particularly MR imaging. And we all know that diffusion weighted MR scans are very sensitive to acute ischemia and will be positive in a proportion of folk who've had transient symptoms. So obviously, 
we expect the diffusion scan to be abnormal in a strobe. It's not always, but we expect it to be abnormal. In TIA, about a third of TIAs will have a, a diffusion abnormality, really meaning it's been a tiny stroke effectively. Um, but the symptoms have resolved quickly within the time frame that we still call a TIA 24 hours. Um, so we rely a bit more on MR. And once you've done a lot of MR scans, you kind of get dependent on them because you start to find uh, diffusion abnormalities in patients you really weren't that um, suspicious were going to have them. And I've been caught out with a few folk where I was fairly confident they had migraine uh, auras and actually found diffusion abnormalities that were much more consistent with acute ischemia than with the changes they might see during a migraine. And that then tends to make you a little bit nervous and you then start to use the scan as a kind of defensive. I'll just check it just in case. Of course, that, that way lies uh, a great deal of stress and worry um, because MR probably isn't the way to diagnose and manage uh, vascular disease. And you don't want to reverse engineer a diagnosis where what appears on the scan will then change entirely what you were thinking clinically. But there's no doubt MR does have a role. It's, it, it, it can be very useful and it has changed a little bit about the way that we approach TIA mimics. And probably what we've been calling mimics, some of those have actually been TIAs and, and small strokes and we've, we've just not appreciated that. Um, the final bit to say about trying to distinguish TIAs from mimics, there were attempts to do this with various scales and the one that most people will be familiar with is the ABCD2 scale. And in fact, that was never meant to be a diagnostic scale. It was never meant to identify TIA patients. It was meant to be a triage tool for identifying high-risk TIA patients. The idea being that in the UK, um, people who aren't listening from the UK might be slightly surprised about this, but um, we had quite significant backlogs sometimes, not only to see folk in clinic, but also to investigate and manage them. And so there needed to be some prioritisation about which patients needed the very urgent assessments. And the ABCD2 score did successfully do that, but we've learned that it really only does that in a population of TIA patients. And the big problem with our TIA clinics is, as we've hinted, most of the patients referred in these days aren't TIA. So if you apply the ABCD2 criteria to a population that isn't TIAs, you get some very strange results. And actually the patients you prioritise are not the ones who you really want to. So the ABCD2 score has gone a bit out of fashion and even modifications of it that were a bit better, uh, that included imaging, for instance, and diffusion abnormalities on MR, for instance, um, are no longer used. We don't rely on the, the scoring scales. That the, the modern guidelines simply say, see everybody as quickly as you can, ideally within 24 hours. And that's probably it for mimics, I think. One, one little aside. Um, so I see quite a lot of patients that come from TIA clinics with a sort of hemi body syndrome, sort of sensory hemibody syndrome. And I, I, well, I see the ones that have no changes on imaging and have been therefore discharged from the TIA clinic. This is not a stroke, it's unlikely a TIA. Do you see many people with a sort of sensory hemibody syndrome where there is any sort of thalamic abnormality or? It's rare, it's, it's not, not possible, it's rare in TIA. And the, the reason that we often quote whether it's really true or not is that TIA, as, as we mentioned earlier, tend to be embolic and embolism tends to be into the cortex and you're a bit unlucky if you wipe out the cortical representation for the face, the arm, the trunk and the leg all in one go. That would require quite a large territorial ischemic area which would tend to manifest with lots of other symptoms as well. So the idea of a kind of lacuna TIA 
it's an interesting concept and it's much debated amongst those that are interested in this sort of thing. Um, there are some syndromes we keep a particular eye out. There's one called capsular warning syndrome, which is one that I used to kind of have as a, a diagnosis that I kept to myself away from the stroke physicians. And the stroke physicians now uh, are aware of this as well. Capsular warning syndrome is a repetitive, repeated um, hemiparetic syndrome. It can be hemicentric as well, but usually hemiparetic thought to be a little small vessel lacuna infarct essentially which hasn't actually happened uh, because of collateral circulation maintaining flow but which from time to time the symptoms break through as the collateral circulation breaks down and sometimes these folk will have 10 20 30 events in a day and essentially in those patients you know, there's a big debate about what to do about that but that, that it seems to be a genuine syndrome and does relate to small vessel TIAs in inverted commas, probably some perfusion element to, to why they're happening so often. Uh, we would always look at the carotids in those populations with high frequency um, hemisensory, hemimotor symptoms to look for a tight carotidosis, particularly bearing in mind that the hemodynamic um, problems that we've talked about, critical carotidosis or carotid occlusions um, might give rise to those sorts of phenomena. And then in the patients who we don't pick anything up on, um, that, like your clinics, it's a puzzle. Um, we usually end up saying, don't know what it is, but it's probably not mm. a TIA. So moving on from the more comfortable TIA clinics with coffee, we're going to get you out of bed, I think. Um, so we're going to talk about thrombolysis, um, the, the, the more acute end of, of stroke. Um, when, when was thrombolysis um, already... Uh, up and running when you qualified as a uh, no I'm a lot older than that uh, so thrombolysis was kind of a stuttering start in the UK um, there were occasional cases being done in the 90s but it was really a, a, a treatment that came about in the in the noughties and we we started doing it formally and it, it was after um, Systematic reviews and meta-analysis showed that it really did work. The NINES study was probably the, the, the one that everybody quotes, but it wasn't until uh, there'd been a little bit more data uh, added in that people really um, grabbed hold of it and said, yes, we need to be doing this. And, and the UK, again, was a little bit cautious. Um, and so it took a time to introduce. So it was a little while after I arrived here that we started doing uh, and provided a, a regular service and like all services it, it started off in a stuttering way as well we, we started doing it nine to five Monday to Friday and saw very few um, and then when we went to 24-7 we then realized there were a lot more patients out there and actually even though you'd expect most strokes to present during the daytime um, it was only really when we went full-time that we started to pick up a, a significant number of cases so so yes that was something that came on a little bit later and um for, for those who might not have been involved in, in thrombolysis calls, um, the, there are very strict criteria and, and helpful criteria that exist for thrombolysis. Are you happy to talk around some of the, the thoughts that you have, maybe if you're, you're startled from pleasant dreams, to be told about someone who probably has um, a, an infarct? What, what are the processes you go through, the thoughts that you have to see whether someone's suitable for thrombolysis? So in order to try and make the service work and particularly 
to staff the service with folk who may not be quite so familiar with the evidence as others. We've, these things are very rigorously protocol and, and most hospitals will have quite a lot of documentation that people carry around and tick boxes to, to go through. So, so this is usually fairly, fairly well rehearsed. And after doing a few, most people tend to, to be fairly quick at it. In fact, the, the inclusion criteria are pretty broad. It's anybody with what you think is an ischemic stroke uh, who's over the age of 16 um, and within an appropriate time frame. And we'll, we'll talk about that perhaps in a minute. The, what gets people vexed is the exclusion criteria. And they started off an awful lot of those because people were most worried that actually if you just opened up this treatment, you would be thrombolizing an awful lot of people who shouldn't be thrombolized. You know, the, the benefit of the treatment was quite modest and therefore you wouldn't need to be giving the treatment to too many people who didn't require it before you'd actually lose the benefit. So there was a lot of worry about giving it to the wrong people. So there was an extensive exclusion criteria set up, largely based on hunches and intuition and on the license that Alteplase had for cardiac indications. And with time and experience and the help of databases and registries that have recorded the outcomes, we've kind of gradually got rid of most of the exclusion criteria. So a lot of the stuff that we used to worry about, we worry much less about. The, the cardinal exclusion criteria uh, still applies, obviously hemorrhage. We don't want to be thrombolizing patients with hemorrhage. Um, blood pressure is still a concern. We know that from the trials, people with uncontrolled very high blood pressure didn't do so well. So we tend not to thrombolize those patients. It's one of the few situations in ischemic stroke at the moment where we will lower the blood pressure. We don't like doing that. Usually lowering blood pressure tends to go along with lowering cerebral perfusion, which is not what you want to be doing in an acute stroke. But in order to facilitate thrombolysis, we will lower blood pressure. And there is a target for that, which is 185 over 110 in, in most guidelines. Um, so hypertension. Anybody that's on anticoagulants, we will still be very nervous about uh, getting thrombolysis too. So this means warfarin, usually with an INR that's greater than 1.7. Uh, the registries and databases have suggested that INRs of 1.7 below uh, are usually safe. The uh, heparins, Therapeutic dose low molecular weight heparin is a bit of a no-no within the last 24 hours. Prophylactic dose we're okay with. Uh, and then, of course, part of the question, I think, that, that, that was based around this was NOAX, where do they stand, or DOAX, whichever you want to call them, direct uh, or novel uh, or anticoagulants, whichever uh, initial you want. The problem there is that it's very difficult to actually measure the effectiveness of a NOAC or a DOAC with uh, a blood test. And unlike the INR, we don't really have a, a readily available test. For dabigatran and dabigatran alone, the activated partial thromboblastin time is okay. Um, it's not the best test, but it, it, it probably is reasonable. And if you have a normal APTT, then uh, most people assume that you'd be okay to uh, go to thrombolysis with the case of dabigatran. With the other drugs, which are factor 10A inhibitors, uh, you can't use the APTT. And what you have to do there, if you're going to try and measure something, is either measure the concentration of the drug itself or have a factor 10A activity assay, which you can do, but it has to be drug specific. And unfortunately, although these tests are possible, and they, they have been done in our labs, 
they do take a bit of time to organize and the, the, the occasions when we've tried to do them uh, it's usually taken too long um, in, the, in the short time window that we've got so in general with noax and noax it's a bit harder to to thrombolize there are some situations where you could still do it so one relates to the drug wearing off these drugs have quite short half-lives unlike warfarin so they tend to be around about uh, 12 hours the, the effective elimination half-life and it's said that if you can get to two of two to three half-lives then you're probably safe and two to three half-lives is kind of 24 to 36 hours down the road so if somebody hasn't taken their treatment for a while then you should be okay giving the treatment most guidelines that suggest doing this will suggest 48 hours as the threshold up to 24 hours is within two half-lives for most of these drugs so i think most people will be very wary of giving treatment so there's that group in between which is the 12 to 24 hour group and that's where it's a bit tricky and you might try and measure uh, factor 10a activity assays or more drug levels in that group we don't normally do that we don't get away with it um, the, the time frames just aren't right for it um, but with the case of dabigatron as i've said the aptt might come to your rescue there so the, the, the quicker answer and the summary answer for the noax would be that beyond 48 hours if they've not taken the treatment for two days then great most folk will have taken the treatment um, and unfortunately if they've taken it within the last 24 hours you're probably scotched um, but between 24 and 48 you might if you've got the wherewithal be able to do an assay uh, to measure um, dabigatran being the exception given that there is a, a simple blood test that you can do that gives you some clue as to that the activity of dabigatran the thing that might change this and it's much debated is the reversal agents so you might be aware there are reversal agents for, for dabigatran drug called idirizizumab that's how you pronounce it um, and also a reversal agent for the factor 10a drugs rivaroxaban idoxaban and apixaban and that's uh, and dexanet alpha and these drugs very, very quickly reverse the anticoagulation effects of these drugs to the point where actually there's a high risk of thrombosis and clotting. Um, and the question is, can you get these folk, uh, reverse the anticoagulation very rapidly and then immediately give them uh, an anticoagulant, well, a kind of anticoagulant in the form of TPA? And there are case reports to suggest that this is feasible and might be safe, but we're not at the point of recommending that at the moment, but that might be where we end up in the future. The problem that we have in the UK and probably rest, you know, the rest of the world as well is that these drugs are fantastically expensive. Probably tens of thousands of pounds for the factor 10A reversal agents for one patient. Um, and I suspect that's gonna be the thing that prevents us from, from doing that routinely. So, yeah. Uh, there are other exclusion criteria as well, which we haven't really talked about. Recent surgery, uh, recent stroke, um, previous history of brain hemorrhage, uh, recent cardiopulmonary resuscitation, pregnancy, recent childbirth. All of these things started off as very strict exclusion criteria and are now um, soft criteria. You would, you would think about thrombolysis in all of those situations. And the idea of waiting three months after surgery is now gone down to much shorter time frames. Most people have a month in mind for major surgery or stroke or some people a couple of weeks even. And actually for some patients, we would, we would kind of have the discussion with the patient if they were capable of entering into it and saying that even with a contraindication, we might still get the treatment. A couple of things that are important. Age used to be a cutoff uh, and uh, age 80 
was, was seen as quite an important threshold. Not anymore. Uh, pretty much everybody should be considered whatever their age. Uh, and timing was initially three hours in the studies. We've extended up to four and a half. Not many people are keen to go beyond four and a half. There is some uh, weak evidence from IST3 trial that you can go up to six hours. But actually, most of the meta-analyses suggest that beyond five hours, intravenous thrombolysis isn't um, statistically significantly beneficial. So I think keeping it the four and a half hour window with the provisos that actually the sooner the better. You don't, we shouldn't be using four and a half as a kind of target. We should be using the sooner the better as the target, but up to four and a half is where most people would have the, the time delay. Um, and most of the other things that you might think of, blood results, um, platelet counts, uh, these sorts of things, we, we tend not to see as, as major contraindications. And moving on from, from the noughties to whatever time this is now, the age of plague or, or whatever, um, thrombectomy is the, is the new, big, new big batter. So when, when do you think thrombectomy? When, when, when does that seriously become something that you consider for a referral? Well, somewhat flippantly, it was about three years ago when, when we had a, an interventionist who could do it. Um, <laughs> but that, that's uh, actually the, the, the criteria for thrombectomy have again, being fairly well um, documented based on good quality studies. The, the, the history is quite interesting. The, the thrombectomy kind of evolved from intra-arterial TPA and, uh, or intra-arterial uh, thrombolysis. That was the initial uh, driver for, for interventional treatments. And then it became clear that actually it took far too long to dissolve clots and that the best way to open up the circulation to revascularize was to remove the clot. And the big development was these stent retrievers. These are devices that weren't meant to extract clot, but actually very useful at it. You, you, it's a stent, that, a deployable stent, which you can then pull out again. And uh, in deploying the stent through the thrombus, you actually pick up the clot and it kind of incorporates itself into the stent. And then when you pull the, the stent back out again, you bring the clot with it and these can uh, result in very rapid revascularization and that was the big game changer and multiple studies i think it's nine studies now have shown that the thrombectomy really is a very effective treatment much more effective than iv thrombolysis on its own it's usually combined with iv thrombolysis in patients who present in the appropriate time frame um, and we started doing it a few years ago uh, when the evidence came out that it was useful but unfortunately as i said we Probably done a, well, we've done much less in the last year or two because we, we don't have the interventionist support that we're used to. And this is a big problem around the whole of the UK. Nobody in the UK is really doing the numbers that are happening in Europe and in North America, which is a real shame. And um, so we're behind the curve big time. In terms of when would you think about it? Um, well, the criteria really are in terms of which patients you want to be. It's the same as the thrombolysis patients with disabling ischemic strokes who haven't already got an established infarction that you can't do anything about. So basically, you want to pick up patients early on, sooner the better. Uh, you want to have no evidence, ideally, of infarction on scan. And the way that we assess that um, is with a particular scoring scale known as the ASPECTS. Um, it's the Alberta Stroke Project Early CT Score, ASPECT Score. And this is a a scoring scale that splits the brain up into 10 separate regions based on two imaging sizes mm -hmm. and the maximum score is 10 and then 
basically you dock a point for any area that has ischemic change on it. And the evidence would suggest if you score more than five on the uh, aspect score, then that's, that's good enough um, to mean that the you haven't got irreconcilable large territory infarction. So it gets a little bit more complicated because that doesn't enter into IV terminology, but so not some knowledge of interpreting CT scans and how to do that. Um, also, you want disabling strokes, not just minor trivial strokes. You don't want to be risking um, uh, the, the not insignificant risks of interventional procedures on folk who have trivial deficits. So there is usually some sort of severity uh, criterion, which in most cases uses the NIHSS scale, which you'll be familiar with from thrombolysis if you've done any. I'm sure you have. Um, and the cutoff there is, is usually six or more on the NHSS, so there is some flexibility. You can have a very disabling dysphasia, for instance, and, and not score six on the NHSS, but we would still probably think about doing the, the procedure. So the criteria are much the same. The timeframes are a bit different, and the thrombectomy timeframes are a little bit complicated, partly because the studies that were done use different timeframes and actually amalgamating them all using systematic reviews and meta-analysis does make it a bit tricky to come up with a single time point at which it, we know that it, you know, be, before that time it works and after that time it doesn't. So we're a little bit loose with the, with the time frames. Most, well, the NICE guidelines suggest uh, treatment must happen within six hours of stroke onset. So currently six hours is, is the, the usual target in the UK. But having said that, we've got at least two studies, um, one called Dawn and one called Diffuse 3, which have shown that delayed uh, thrombectomy beyond six hours can be highly effective and in fact paradoxically more effective in terms of outcomes than treatment up to six hours and we can talk about why that might be in a second um, but these studies have shown treatments up to 16 hours uh, in the case of diffuse three and 24 hours in the case of dawn and there are even case reports of treatment well beyond 24 hours proving effective that's particularly true of the posterior circulation so basilar thrombosis, basilar occlusion, and posterior cerebral artery occlusion, there is some evidence that you can uh, withdraw clot and remove clot well beyond uh, the usual timeframes in, in those patients. So that's the bit that kind of makes it a bit trickier. The timeframes are much harder, but six hours is probably the number to carry on in the head. And then beyond six hours, the decision-making there does get much more sophisticated. Up until six hours, you can make your decision based on straightforward CT plus a CT angiogram usually to show that you've got the large vessel occlusion. And you do have to show that. You can't just uh, work on the basis that it might be an occluded artery and use it off to the interventionist. So, so basically we now do CT angiograms on acute stroke patients. Pretty much every stroke patient will get a CT angiogram on the basis that they might be a candidate for, C, uh, for thrombectomy. Beyond six hours, you then have to use what we call complex imaging. And the studies used different techniques. So again, if you're going to be very strictly evidence-based, you might have to tailor your uh, imaging techniques according to the timeframes that are involved. So the DAWN study used a mismatch between the clinical presentation, how severe the stroke was on the NHSS score, um, against how big the stroke was on imaging studies. You can measure the volume of the infarct, um, predominantly using CT perfusion scans. 
and you can work out whether the NIHSS score that you find in your patient matches the volume or not. And there was a mismatch uh, criterion that was set up in the Dawn trial. The Wait, was, that a, was that a software calculation that did that? There's a software calculation for the volume. Mm. Uh, that's not the kind of thing you want a radiologist pouring over uh, for hours on end. So there is a software. And of course, yeah, the big question is, well, which software? And is the software all the same? And what about different scanners? And of course, none of these questions have been satisfactorily completely solved. But there is no doubt that different scanners and different software will produce different, slightly different outcomes. But at least there is an attempt to try and make it all a bit more uh, kind of consistent. Uh, for the other trial, the Diffuse 3 trial, they used um, a perfusion-diffusion mismatch, so a penumbra scan, basically trying to show that there was a, a, a mismatch between the area of ischemia uh, and the area of what was felt to be full infarction. And using those criteria, if you have a big enough penumbra, and there are various you know, numbers that were applied in that trial, then you can involve your interventionist. So what you need if you're going to be doing thrombectomies beyond six hours is complex imaging. And actually, it might be shown in the future that it makes sense to use that complex imaging before six hours as well, that there are probably patients well before six hours who've already had irreversible infarction and where doing thrombectomy is a waste of time, as well as patients well beyond six hours where, where it's useful. So I think we're going to nuance and fine tune the criteria. But at the moment, up until six hours, it's pretty much the same as IV thrombolysis, but you need your CT angiogram to show that you've got an occluded vessel. And beyond six hours, you need some form of mismatch between either the clinical and the imaging uh, or the perfusion and the diffusion. And this means that really the decision making is getting quite complicated and you're probably going to need a kind of MDT team approach. You're going to have to involve the interventionist, a stroke physician, um, and probably others as well to really get these patients sorted out, sorted out quickly. And the idea of having kind of small units that do this just isn't really tenable. So this is really the birth and the reinforcement of the um, kind of setup of these comprehensive stroke units, big units that, that have the, the capabilities to do all of this and to have the staff present 24-7 to make these decisions. And there's very few places in the UK that are doing this 24-7 because of the, the limitations. Uh, the local service we have at the moment is six days a week and it's pretty much you know, nine to five. So, you know, if you present with your big stroke at the wrong time and on the wrong day, you're not going to get the uh, most appropriate treatment, unfortunately, which is almost a scandal given how long we've known now. It's several years now that we've known that these treatments are highly effective. And I think you, you recommended uh, for me to read the Mr. Clean study which which is, is a good one to read um for anyone who's a keen bean do you recommend any other studies beyond the yeah i mean i can i can put links to all of them the, the mr clean was the first one that's a dutch trial fairly pragmatic actually and the one that required the least kind of uh, jumping through mental hoops to, to get patients into it uh it was essentially using the kind of clinical criteria plus uh the, the, the cta as i've mentioned didn't use complex imaging um, and the, the other ones, well, there's a few of them, I'll, I'll put links. There's, there were five big ones that were used in a big meta-analysis called the Hermes uh, meta-analysis, which is the thing that kind of really drove the proof that the treatment worked. Uh, but there's, there's lots of other ones, and, and the, the diffuse in the dawn are interesting ones to follow up on as well, because that's where the future lies in, in the delayed. Might be worth just quickly mentioning why it is 
that the benefit was greater uh, in the Diffuse and Dawn trials than it was in the sub-six-hour trials, and this was quite interesting. So uh, Dawn, I think, showed about a 36% absolute reduction or absolute benefit in terms of independence from treatment. So a number needed to treat of less than three, which is spectacular. Um, and more, a bigger absolute benefit than we saw in the, the not to six hour studies. And the theory that on this is that basically there are different kinds of stroke patient. There are those who have a pretty good collateral circulation and where they will have a kind of slow infarction or an infarct that can survive some days, maybe two or three days before actually the, the, the brain finally infarcts, being maintained by a good collateral. And there are other patients who don't have a really good collateral and within an hour or two, they have irreversibly infarcted their brains. And the idea, the theory is that the prolonged studies that look beyond six hours had selected out the patients with the good collaterals and that therefore these patients already were shown to be folk who had a good collateral circulation. They hadn't got the, the, the fully formed infarction. Um, whereas in the pre-six-hour studies, there were probably quite a few folk in there who'd already had frank infarction and no amount of IV or thrombectomy treatment was going to salvage any brain tissue. Um, add to that, within the six-hour group, some of the folk got IV TPA, and that was the comparator. So the comparator to thrombectomy wasn't no treatment in these studies. It was best medical therapy, which was IV treatment. So the comparator treatment would be working um, in the sub-six-hour studies, whereas beyond six hours, we wouldn't be giving IV TPA. So the control group had no chance in the beyond six hours. So you, you had a, a selected group of responders, in inverted commas, plus you'd eliminated uh, the, the chance of your control group doing well with, the, with any other treatment. And that's probably why the benefits seem to be even greater beyond six hours. But it does mean that there are you know, huge potential benefits from albeit a small number of patients quite late on. And this means that thrombectomy isn't just a kind of middle of the night thing or an immediate decision making. It is for patients who can present late. Um, and you know, we have to think about it even in folk where we don't have a 24-7 service, we have to think about it the next day. Is this patient still in the time frame where we could be doing a thrombectomy, given the complex imaging uh, evidence? That's really nice evidence that would need to be used in planning the services of the future for you guys to plan the services of the future. Oh, we've got the plans. Uh, it's just we don't have the resources, <laughs> sadly. So um, there, were, there were quite a few questions about NOACs or, or, or DOACs, and we're just going to touch back on those now that we've gone to now that we've talked about uh, hypoacute management of stroke. So. One question asked about um, which DOACs you tend to use for UAF or when you would use warfarin. And another question, which is probably more for our neurological trainees, was about uh, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and whether there would ever be the evidence available to use a, a DOAC or a NOAC instead of warfarinization. Um, obviously, you will have more experience of this than anyone else, really. What, what are your thoughts and how does that compare to the evidence that we have? Or particularly for venous sinus thrombosis, the lack of evidence we have. Okay, well, I'll start with AF, and then if I forget, remind me about the, the venous sinus thrombosis. The, the AF data originally came from individual trials of individual NOACs and DOACs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, 
Dabigatran, Rivaroxaban, Pixaban, and then more recently Adoxaban, and there are other ones on the way. And they all were set up largely as non-inferiority studies. That means the statistics of the studies were done to try and show that they were equivalent, if you like, or at least not inferior to warfarin. Um, it's very difficult to do any other kind of design with, with these, uh, the way these drugs are used. Um, and, they did, and they showed that. If you combine the studies, and this has been done obviously with systematic reviews and meta-analysis, then you get much better point estimates of the effectiveness. And that those studies have been done and tend to suggest that actually there probably are small benefits in terms of stroke prevention for the NOAX compared to warfarin. Although I think it's still fair to say most people would say it's not inferiority, they're as good as warfarin. And what we mean by warfarin is warfarin with well-controlled INR in the appropriate target range. Uh, obviously, anybody who can't maintain INR in the appropriate therapeutic range shouldn't be on the warfarin. So the, the, the initial guidelines were set up to say you can use either, they're equivalent, um, provided you can maintain warfarin within the appropriate range. Now, for patients, the hassle of warfarin, blood tests, um, etc., compared with NOACs, where we don't tend to monitor, um, means that yeah, no acts rule was the popular choice for patients. Uh, what the systematic reviews and meta-analysis have shown now is that actually the, there are some important differences in adverse effects. And the adverse effects particularly that we're worried about these drugs are bleeding. And there is consistent and clear evidence that the no acts have smaller major bleeding risks than warfarin. And that's particularly true of intracranial hemorrhage, where it's about half the, the risk of the NOACs that it is for warfarin. But even other bleeding problems as well seem to be less likely on the NOACs. There is a slight separation there. And if you were going to kind of use a NOAC on the basis of this one's actually better than another one, the, the one that comes out poorly on the bleeding complications is rivaroxaban. So the, the head-to-head study uh, against warfarin and unfortunately this is how the, the comparison is made you can't there isn't a, a kind of every single NOAC in a trial comparing them you have to do some sort of a network meta-analysis which is where you take the individual studies and then try and network them together uh, and in those analysis the data would suggest that dabigatran, rivaroxaban and edoxaban have smaller bleeding risks than warfarin but rivaroxaban is, a, is the same ballpark figure for as warfarin. So in terms of definite differences between the treatments, you might use that as an argument to say, well, we, we perhaps shouldn't use rivaroxaban. On the other hand, rivaroxaban has an advantage in terms of being a once-a-day dosage, whereas the other drugs are usually twice daily dosing. So the, the small benefit in compliance might actually outweigh, and one of the problems with these drugs is we don't routinely measure compliance like we consistently did with warfarin when, when checking the INR. So there's always a slight worry, are the patients actually taking it? So in terms of no act choice, if you go down that road, you could say, well, it's going to be a Pixaban, Edoxaban, or Dabigatran. Uh, and actually, without cutting a long story short, the one that ticks most of the boxes in most of the analyses that have been done, and this is largely based on registry data now, so there have been some huge registries done, um, big numbers from uh, Europe and North America. Uh, the, the suggestion 
at least in, in my recollection, is that Apixaban seems to tick most boxes, has the best combination of efficacy and side effect profile. So we started off on Rivaroxaban and we've switched to Apixaban a few years ago. So we now use Apixaban partly because our cardiologists used Apixaban and we want to have consistent prescribing across the trust, but partly for this reason, um, seems to be the, the best in terms of cost-effective and adverse effect profile. You asked me to remind you about venous sinus thrombosis. Venous sinus thrombosis, yeah, I was coming on to that, obviously. <laughs> um, so venous sinus thrombosis, yeah, we like to anticoagulate patients with venous sinus thrombosis. Uh, some people may not know there is the evidence for that isn't actually robust um, in the sense of a statistically significant randomized controlled trial outcome. There have been a couple of studies looking at anticoagulation in venous sinus thrombosis, and neither of them achieved significant results. Um, largely, almost certainly because of power, the numbers are small below 100 um, combined number of patients in those studies so very tricky to, to for, for the power to actually show that those treatments work the reason why we use anticoagulation is that the point estimates were in favor of the treatment and there was no excess of bleeding even in hemorrhagic strokes um, being thrombosis. so we assume anticoagulation is safe intuitively we think it should work um, and the evidence at least the point estimate even if not statistically significant did show that there was a benefit so that's the background to using anticoagulants. We tend to use heparin as the initial treatment, usually these days low molecular weight heparin, sometimes occasionally still unfractionated uh, um, heparin based on bleeding risk. If we think somebody's really at very high risk of bleeding, we might go to dose-adjusted unfractionated heparin because that's more quickly reversible than low molecular weight. Um, but most times it's low molecular weight and I do worry a little bit about um, using heparin pumps on wards where they're not used to, to using them. So I think for safety reasons, the low molecular weight wins out. Uh, eventually, though, we switch folk to oral, and it's traditionally been warfarin. Uh, there have been quite a lot of case series and observational studies suggesting that NOACs work as well, but no RCT data as yet. So the first answer to the kind of plaintive question about will we ever get any evidence for NOACs is that there is some evidence already. It's just not the kind of evidence you'd really want. So it's not randomized controlled trial evidence. It's softer evidence. But there is evidence that, that they probably are safe to use and probably are effective. Um, will we ever get an RCT? I doubt it. Uh, the numbers that you need of what's quite a rare disorder just preclude i think getting you know good data on this the, the, the you know, you'd have to do a non-inferiority design the power calculation would probably suggest that needs thousands of patients and as i've mentioned the, the, the studies combined are less than 100 patients at the moment and i was kind of peripherally involved when i was in liverpool in, in getting patients into the uh, one of the, uh, the heparin trials when they were done and it was really very tricky to get patients into, into those studies. So I don't think there's ever going to be an RCT showing that NOACs uh, are better or as good as warfarin in, in long-term treatment. I think it'll just be intuitive and case series and registries which show that the risk is, is no different. And there are some really big case series with hundreds if not thousands of patients in them. Um, registry databases which which will probably give us robust enough data to, to say that no acts are safe. Certainly the bleeding risks um, 
should be less if, if the data from AF is, is equivalent. So that's mainly what we're worried about with these patients is bleeding into the brain. So it intuitively seems logical that the NOAX will, will be at least as good as warfarin, but um, no, I don't think we'll get RCT data on it, unfortunately. Slightly cheekily, from a personal practice point of view, would you be happy to use a, a DOAC at this point for a patient of yours with venous thrombosis? Uh, I think I probably would. It hasn't cropped up uh, for, for a few months, but yeah, I probably would. Um, I think I'm, I'm seeing a change, a gradual change. And the, the slight worry, um, and it is only a slight worry, is that I, you know where you are with warfarin in the sense that the INR tells you that the patient is compliant. Mm -hmm. And I'm just slightly nervous about sending folk home uh, who then decide that they don't need the treatment and stop taking the treatment. With so it, it's, it, it's not really a very appropriate reason for, for not moving to NOAX, but it, it's just... I worry a little bit about how do we check on compliance or how do we know that folk are continuing their treatments. There's a little bit of patient selection. Yeah, I think in the right patients, yeah. um, it, 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 it's reasonable. I, I doubt there will be evidence to suggest that no acts carry risks that we weren't anticipating. We've got an awful lot of data now from the registries and other conditions to tell us everything we need to know, I think about the risk side. So I'd be very surprised if there was a problem with the NOAX. Um, it's just, you really don't want people re-thrombosing uh, within the first two or three months um, with uh, such a dangerous condition. So I'd just be a little bit nervous about that. But I think the short answer is, yeah, I probably would be comfortable going to it. Thank you. So I'm aware that the time has really run away. So probably we've only got time for one more. So I'm, I'm going to let you decide which, which one you'd like to. All right. What so, have we got left? So of the, of the, of the two, I think that, um, that were asked several times. So I've heard quite a few variations on sort of vascular rarities, or oh, yeah. unusual um, vascular conditions that a neurologist should know. And the other one that was asked a lot with uh, quite a few unhappy emojis was, uh, I'm always asked when I should, when anticoagulant should be restarted on a patient I don't know who might have had a neurosurgical procedure or a brain hemorrhage. Um, okay, well, uh, I got a quick thrash at both of those quickly then. So restarting anticoagulants, no RCT data, so no clear answer. Most people will differentiate between lobar hemorrhage and small deep hemorrhages. The presumption is small deep hemorrhages relate to hypertension to small vessel problems. Whereas lobar hemorrhage, there is a worry of particularly cerebral with angiopathy, but other conditions that have high risk of recurrence. And there is evidence of a higher risk of recurrent bleeding in lobar hemorrhage. So we do worry a bit about lobar hemorrhage and whether to restart anticoagulation at all in those patients. You've also got to look at the ischemic risk um, or the other risks. So for, say, for instance, mechanical heart valves, you really can't manage those without anticoagulation safely. So you're going to have to restart your anticoagulants. Most people would take folk with AF who've had a TIO or a stroke and say that their risk of having a, a stroke is high enough that you really would want them to go back on to anticoagulation. There are patients in other categories, uh, for instance, primary prevention in AF, where you might say, actually, they shouldn't go back on to anticoagulation at all. Um, and that's a debate to be had and discussed with the patient. If you decide you are going to re uh, restart the anticoagulants, when would you do it? And there is no answer to that, of course, because there is no RCT data. Anything from one week to two months is suggested. Um, 
my view is it has to be an individual decision. You have to tell the patient there isn't strong data to, to make the, the judgment. You can calculate using chance risk in the case of AF, what the ischemic stroke risk is. You can make a stab at calculating the bleeding risk using scores, including something called Hasbled, which is a score most people have heard of. Uh, and you can try and do it that way and balance risks and benefits, but it's actually quite a tricky thing to do and the patient never quite fits into precisely the data set that you're using to, to inform. Um, but the bottom line is, if you have to restart, then it's, it has to be with the patient's knowledge that you're not basing it on, on solid uh, data, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, in terms of rarities, I won't mention them all. I, you know, I have a huge list of rarities. There is something that, a matter of kind of um, neurological pride, if you like, that there should always be at least one condition that you write in the notes that nobody's thought of. Or um, heard of. And so stroke neurologists are no different, I suspect. We all carry around really weird and strange conditions in our head. It used to be the case that uh, things like dissection and venous thrombosis and you know cavernomas and these sorts of things were kind of new conditions for stroke physicians or for elderly care physicians, and you know, it wouldn't take too much to be able to come up with some some interesting things in the differential that nobody thought of. Nowadays, as I've mentioned, stroke physicians are really very savvy. They're, they're, they know an awful lot more uh, and are you know, highly competent um, and extremely well-trained in, in the differential diagnosis. And so to find something that nobody's thought of is a challenge, but rest assured, we can usually do it. Um, and as long as you're up to date on some of your eponyms and your really weird conditions, you should be able to think of something. Uh, I'll perhaps do a little list of, of, of weird and rare stuff um, that, that people can carry around with them. In terms of what's useful, that's a slightly different question. So there's the kind of pompous, uh, here's a diagnosis nobody thought of um, approach, but also in terms of stuff that you shouldn't forget. Uh, infections, HIV, yes, syphilis I've mentioned, uh, TB, uh, various things where if you don't get the diagnosis, you're, you're, you're going to kind of do a huge disservice to the patient uh, subacute infective endocarditis still a big issue often forgotten uh, and actually uh, something i didn't mention it in the contraindications but, but one of the, the few major contraindications to thrombolysis you've got much more chance of bleeding into an infarct um, that's related to infective endocarditis than other situations so you wouldn't want to thrombolyze those patients um, rare genetic stuff we're a bit familiar with we mentioned catacyl fabries um, mitochondrial disorders and then yeah, a few things like Kog uh, Kogan's and uh, Susacks and Sneddon's and other things that neurologists like to, to carry around in their uh, ground round differential and CPC differential but yeah it, it's less crucial than it used to be uh, just professional pride really in, in having at least one that nobody knows. I think I would like to see your dual list your your pragmatic list and your grand round list and that would be nice to put in the to put in the notes below um, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, we always end on the same question, which is if you had the opportunity to let's say, I want to say if you had the opportunity to go back and give some sage advice to yourself where I am now. So you've, you've just started as a consultant and you're just finding your feet. What advice would you give? This is clearly for me. <laughs> um, what would I say to my younger self? Uh, don't worry about the mortgage uh, would be the first thing. Uh, that was probably my biggest uh, worry that I had. And it turned out that it 
wasn't such an issue. Uh, get on with your colleagues. So make an effort uh, to get on with your colleagues. Always be supportive of them because it will be the case that they will need to be supportive of you in the future. Uh, maintain interests outside of your clinical practice to try and keep yourself fresh and infused. Uh, I went through various different iterations, uh, educational through the college, doing I was a college tutor for a while, did lots of kind of stuff there. I was on the Drugs and Therapeutics Committee chair of that for a bit. Uh, I then joined the Intercollegiate Stroke Working Party, which has been a fantastic committee for me, where basically we've been part of producing the national guidelines and doing audits of, of units and the, the carotid stenosis audit that there was. Um, other things like professional organisations, the RCP, and in the stroke world, the British Association of Stroke Physicians. So get yourself onto other things that get you out of your local hospital and get you meeting other people. That's what actually keeps you interested and keeps you going. If you're that way inclined, try and keep the research going. I, I was That's one of the things I wasn't able to do that I wanted to do, which was to do more research. I had in mind trying to set up much more research than I ever did. Uh, I did a few clinical trials, but I didn't, uh, as a consultant, but didn't really set up any original research. And that's something I'm kind of a bit uh, regretful about. So if you are interested in research, try and develop that. It is actually another area where you can not just find stuff that's interesting to do, but you get to meet other people who are, who are great and enthusiastic, keeps, keeps you, as I say, uh, keeps your energy levels up and keeps you enthused about your subject. Uh, in terms of day-to-day -day stuff, as I say, I think colleagues are very important, the department's very important, support those around you, uh, the nurses, the, the, the junior doctors. Uh, these are all the people that you're going to be spending every day with. Um, and that's probably the most important thing is make sure the environment that you're turning up today, uh, each day to, to work in is a, is a happy and a contented one. And that way you'll get to your decrepitude uh, that I am now without hopefully too much despair. You look very well for somebody who's decrepit. Yeah, well, don't mention that since I'm using my <laughs> health as a reason to drop off the on-call road. <laughs> well, thank you very much again. That was fantastic, and I'm sure everybody else will enjoy it too. Thank Hope you, so. Helen. Not all good fun. This is Tease Neuro, and that was this week's guest, Dr. Gavin Young. We have an ever-expanding library of podcasts covering a range of topics available on Podbean and the Tease Neuro website. Let us know what you think on at Tease Neuro and give us your suggestions for future episodes.